working drummer. Now kick it. This is the Working Drummer Podcast, serving up perspectives, experiences, and stories from ground-level working pros. Advice, tips, and secrets on how to build a career in the music business. What's up, everyone? I'm Zach Albetta, and this is Working Drummer Podcast. We've been wanting to interview a drummer in Austin, Texas for a while now, and today is the day. Wayne Saltzman came to Austin almost a decade ago to attend grad school at University of Texas and has since worked his way to the top of the Austin scene. He's played with some names you know, such as Mike Stern, Osnoy, and Bobby McFerrin, as well as some Austin favorites like singer-songwriter Bob Schneider and real-life guitar hero Eric Johnson. Wayne teaches at the UT Austin Jazz Department and also leads a couple of groups of his own. If you haven't already, check out last week's episode. I was involved in a great conversation with my co-host Matthew Krause and our buddy Nick Ruffini of Drummer's Resource about how all three of us are going through pretty big transitions right now. As you probably know, I recently moved from L.A. to Atlanta. Matt recently quit his touring gig and is reinvesting in uh, playing locally in Nashville and spending more time with his family. And Nick is about to relocate from the East Coast to the Bay Area, so we had a cool talk about the personal and professional challenges our transitions present and how to make the most of them. Please follow us on social media, post pics and videos of your gigs using hashtag Working Drummer, leave us a rating and review on iTunes, we appreciate all that you do to help spread the word about what we do here at Working Drummer. Hey folks, can we talk snare drums real quick? Dreamy, loud, bright, poppy, clean, articulate snares, and well... Do you believe at love at first sight? Okay, first sound. Well, before I get into all that, let me tell you, the folks at KHS America invited me back out to their place to experience a few new snare drums they launched at Winter Nam. And the drum I fell in love with, I was mentioning, it's one of the new Mapex Black Panther Design Lab series snares. It's called the Heartbreaker. A 14x6 8-ply mahogany shell with reinforcement rings, I could instantly hear the possibilities with this drum. And our friends at KHS America allowed me to take this drum on a test drive. I've used it live and in the studio, and let me just say, it got noticed. Punchy yet warm, it never lost its beautiful tone, even as I tuned it lower and lower. The other snares in this line include the Cherry Bomb, an 8-ply cherry wood precise-sounding snare, available in 14x6 or 13x5.5, and and the Equinox, a 14x5 6-ply maple snare that's described as classic, bright, and articulate. Yes, all true. Some of the shared features of these four drums are the pure sound snares and the micro-lock, cylinder drive with the butt-end adjuster, and English mat. Okay, you know that little click-click you feel on the throw that keeps the snares in place? That's what I'm talking about. In the very near future on this podcast, we are going to sit down and talk with Russ Miller and get the backstory on these snares, as well as some very interesting developments coming your way through the Black Panther Design Lab line of instruments. You're going to want to hear this. So I really dug hearing about Austin uh, from Wayne. He's only in his early 30s, but Austin has already provided him with a ton of experience, both as a player and a teacher, and he has a really good read on everything that city is about, from the live club work to recording to the partnership between the music department at UT Austin and the pro scene in town. So let's get to it with Wayne Saltzman. Just uh, start off by, by giving us kind of a snapshot of Austin, what the scene is like right now. Um, and, and what, uh, your, your day-to-day life there is like. Sure. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, Austin is, uh, the, the self-proclaimed live music capital of the world, I guess. But, and the reason for that, like the reason for that title, I think is that 
there are a lot of bands and a lot of artists who are playing all the time. Mm-hmm. So that's one thing that's really cool about Austin. For a city this size, you know, you can go out on a Monday night and see 75 different bands. Yeah. So I think that's pretty rare for a lot of, of cities, especially, uh, well, I think it's rare for any city, really. Yeah. But um, there's a pretty nice variety of music. There's a lot of, like, kind of old-school blues and old-school country Um and then there's all the normal stuff that you find. There's a decent jazz scene, again, for the size of the city. Mm-hmm. There are a handful of clubs that are devoted exclusively to jazz. <clears throat> um, and then there are a lot of bars that have bands just like, you know, Nashville or Atlanta or whatever. Um, and then there's a whole scene of, of singer-songwriters, mm-hmm. uh, you know, doing kind of the from the coffee shop thing all the way up to, you know, like Christopher Cross or or Willie Nelson or something. You know what I mean? Right. Um, so there's a nice wide variety of stuff. There are a lot of corporate bands, wedding bands, stuff like that. And then there's this whole scene, which I actually never even knew about until I moved here, like the red dirt country scene. Hmm. So there are a bunch of musicians who live in Austin who – make their living like Thursday, Friday, Saturday. They just tour regionally basically. Mm-hmm. And uh and they, you know, make their bank and then they're free to do whatever they want on the on the weekdays. Uh and there are a bunch of bands like that. Like those and for the most part those bands don't really tour nationally. It's just this regional kind of red dirt country thing that's like te- mostly Texas and a little bit of like Oklahoma and uh, maybe sometimes over a little bit to Louisiana. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, it's, it's an interesting thing. I mean, I didn't, I didn't really know that that was a scene, but like the Texas country charts are their own world. Really? Yeah. I mean, there are guys who survive solely on that and I'm talking like making millions of dollars. To her. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. Seriously. It's crazy. So, so uh, I've, yeah. I've never heard that term "red dirt country." Does that does that refer to a, a style and or a geographic region? I think it's more geographic. Um, you know, kind, the, of, kind of like the Chitlin Circuit, like referring to the, the area yeah. that they cover. Yeah, totally. Cool. Yeah. So, who are some? I of mean, the, I haven't really, I haven't really played in in those bands, mm-hmm. so I don't really know. But uh, right, but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um. So are there uh are there a lot of guys, you know, and gals, drummers, musicians, songwriters, whatever who are who are really making a, a living in Austin or would you say the majority of people are kind of like working the day job chasing the 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 music dream? Um I think it's a pretty balanced mix even in my kind of circle. Um there are some like amazing fantastic musicians who just don't want to hustle really mm-hmm, yeah. so they just work work a day job right you know like one of the most notable jazz saxophonists in town who has had an ongoing residency for many years and has won a bunch of awards and stuff he works for Dell wow you know and he just like makes his makes his money there and then he can just play the gigs that he wants to play yeah uh, but then like you know, for me and for I think most of my colleagues, 
we're doing it, making a living playing music, but it's it's coming from a lot of sources. Mm-hmm. So I play with a whole bunch of different bands, and I teach privately and at the university, um, and I do session work, and you know, it all comes together. Yeah, you know, to make like what would be a normal full-time job (laughs) (laughs) right it's just it ends up being just a constant hustle you know Mm -hmm. for the past like as you know i'm sure 15 17 years whatever Mm -hmm. it's just been like one gig leading to the next sort of yeah yeah how long have you been teaching at uh, ut austin uh this is my seventh year so yeah you've been there a while yeah and are you are you adjunct faculty there i am adjunct i'm super adjunct i'm there one (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> but I, I do a marathon day. In fact, right right as soon as we're done here, I'm heading there to teach eight hours straight, back to back, no break. Wow. <laughs> Man. Yeah. Is that your one day that's, a week? That's my one day a week. Wow. Yeah. And I chose to do it that way because uh, we moved a little far out of town, which is another thing we could maybe address at some point. Yeah. The, the housing is getting insane in Austin. So most of the people sort of in my situation are either renting or not able to afford living in Austin. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm a little bit out. I'm like in the first kind of suburb South. Uh, so, you know, I try to just like stack stuff up when I'm going to go into town because uh, with traffic, it ends up being like an hour drive a lot of times, yeah. you know, yeah, to drive 15 miles. <laughs> Jeez, yes. I, you know, I was in LA for five years, and and now I'm in Atlanta, which is really not much better in terms of traffic. Um, really? Wow. Yeah, yeah. It's it's pretty bad. It's pretty bad. Yeah, because LA is infamous for sure. Oh yeah, and you know, during during the five years I was there, I would talk to people who had lived there for decades, and they all said this is the worst it's ever been. <laughs> um, oh, yeah. It Stuff. Was this, you know. One of the one of the things I do not miss about LA, um, sure. But speaking of housing, like it it uh, it sounds like the you know the same thing is happening in a bunch of cities around yeah. the country. Like just the cost of housing is skyrocketing, uh, and I don't know if it's if it's you know hipster gentrification in Austin or or what. But I think it's a little bit of that. It's just the fact that it's one of the fastest growing cities in the country. Mm. So they're just building houses like crazy. And then it's also just bumping up the the cost everywhere. Like, I mean, I, I have friends who bought their houses in the 90s uh, for like around $100,000, sometimes less. And now they're looking at, depending on the situation, between like three and $600,000 in value. Wow. Yeah, amazing. totally insane. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so at, did at one point you live in, uh, you know, Austin proper? Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, my wife and I were renting a house, um, like, you know, a, a mile or two from, from downtown. It was like 10 minutes to get to a gig downtown. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we were there for seven or eight years. Um, <clears throat> and then, and at the time when we moved in, the, the property values were like in the, 150s 200s and now that neighborhood is is like 350 jeez so you just got priced out yeah totally so we moved you know 10 miles south of where we were and then we got a sweet brand new house for you know under 200 grand yeah that's great yeah which is kind of how it goes 
everywhere, you know, you get yeah. a little further outside and then, and then it's affordable again. <laughs> yeah. yeah. My wife and I are, are renting a great house right now in, in Decatur, which is a cool little part of Atlanta. Uh, and I think by Atlanta standards, we're paying too much, but by LA standards, we're like, Oh my God, like we right. get this whole house. <laughs> Um, well, that's the other thing that happens is like people move here from LA and they're like, or from, you know, Northern California, whatever. And they're mm -hmm. like, oh, I can get a house 10 minutes from downtown for 350,000. Sounds great. And I'm like 350,000, forget about it, you know? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So speaking of like immigrants to Austin, uh, you know, you, you said it's one of the fastest growing cities in the country as, as far as the music scene is concerned. Where are people coming from to, to come to Austin and what are they coming to do? Um, geez. I mean, there are so many people coming here. I meet new musicians all the time. Mm -hmm. Like almost every time I go out, I meet somebody who's like, yeah, I've been here for three months, you know? Mm. Um, so it, it really it's, it's all over. I've definitely met a lot of people who have moved here from LA, uh, and New York. And I think those, things are obvious. It's just a matter of like, uh, their cost of living was too high and there weren't enough gigs for them. Mm -hmm. So that's the difference with Austin is you can come here and you can play gigs, but you're going to be hustling like $50 gigs, right. you know? Right. And it's hard to make a living off of that. Yeah. Um, but yeah. And then at the same time, there are people coming from the middle of nowhere, you know, like I, I moved here from Wisconsin and I've met actually a bunch of people who have moved here from Wisconsin. In fact, just last week, somebody called me looking for drum lessons, a drummer from Wisconsin, you know, who mm -hmm. I didn't know, but, you know, he just found me somewhere, you know. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so, yeah, it really is kind of all over. <laughs> yeah, it, it seems like one of those second or third tier cities, again, like Atlanta or Kansas City or, or Seattle. Totally. Or some, you know, some people are coming from New York or LA because they're tired of the big city hustle, but other people are coming from nowheresville because they, you know, they think of Austin as the big city. Exactly. Yeah. So that probably makes for a good mix of people with different backgrounds, different goals, different interests, different, you know. Definitely. Yeah. So it keeps the scene vibrant, I think, in that sense, probably much like Atlanta. Mm -hmm. I mean, I don't know the Atlanta scene that well. I've played there a handful of times, and I have a couple of friends who lived there or are living there, you know. Um, but from what I saw, actually, when I was there, it was one of the places, just talking to the musicians, where there are a lot of places to play, mm -hmm. it seems like. Yeah. Yeah. yeah there's a so lot of, I think it's similar to Austin in that way. Yeah. A lot of good venues. Um, a lot of, like you said, corporate work, wedding stuff. Um, you know, uh, there's a lot of, a lot of traveling going on in and out of Atlanta. A lot of tours happen, um, either on yeah, kind of a yeah. regional basis for a few days or a couple of weeks or on a national or international basis. Um, it just sure. seems, you know, those kind of cities just seem like, an easier place from which to launch whatever you want to do. Yeah. Um, yeah. And you know, that the, makes sense. The, in New York or LA, I think the ceiling might be higher as far as the, the fortune you can make. <laughs> um, yeah. Yeah. But uh, yeah, that's the other thing about Austin is like the, there's the studio scene here. Like there is everywhere, mm -hmm. but it's uh much smaller scale projects than right. somewhere like, LA or Nashville or New York. Um, and similarly, there are some bands that tour out of Austin, but I mean, I can count them 
on two hands. <laughs> yeah. You know, I mean, and that's it. There are, aren't any other bands really that tour nationally. Um, whereas somewhere like Nashville, there are like hundreds of bands that are, that are based out of there. So, so although there is a lot of just kind of local club gig work that, like you said, that the ceiling is maybe a little bit lower for mm-hmm. some of the other stuff like touring and recording. You were brought to Austin because of grad school, right? You went to grad school at UT Austin? Yeah, exactly. Um, and so that, that was seven years ago? That was nine years ago. Okay. So so I actually taught uh, – I was a teaching assistant. So I actually did teach. So I've technically been teaching there for nine years, but I've been on faculty for seven. Right. Um, what was your uh, graduate degree in? Uh, jazz performance. Okay, and what is what was the jazz program at UT like when when you were a student, and and has it changed at all? Have you done anything to sort of alter the uh, the drum curriculum there? Um, I would say the drum curriculum has changed. The program overall hasn't changed much because it's a really small program, and they kind of keep it that way on purpose. Mm-hmm. I, I think um, Jeff Helmer is the director there, uh, and he has a good. Um, scope of what's happening kind of nationally. So he realizes that if he graduates 15 doctoral students every single year to go out into the job market, all these guys are going to be joining this pool applying for the same three full-time jazz gigs that open up nationally yeah. every year. Yeah. You know, I mean, that, that pool is super small, actually. And so he doesn't want to... Um, he doesn't want to overfill it. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So um, we just accept a handful, like depending on the year, maybe two to like four uh, doctoral students. And same thing, like two or three master's students. And mm-hmm. then kind of a normal amount of undergrads. But but the music school at Austin is, is huge. There are 800 music majors. Wow. And 40 of them are jazz majors wow. including doctoral masters and undergrad yeah so it's it's pretty tiny it's real selective yeah yeah but i mean for a school to have 40 jazz majors i mean the idea of a jazz major is is you know relatively new in in college uh in yeah. college music so I mean, to have 40 would, of those cats right but ut is kind of one of the originals they've had a a jazz major here for at least 25 years maybe 30 wow um, and, and actually UT was one of the very first schools to offer a doctorate in jazz. Um, so, and it still is only one of, I don't know, maybe 10 or 12 that mm-hmm. have a, a jazz doctoral degree. So, so the level of doctoral students is super, super high. Yeah. And that's something that keeps this, the jazz scene real vibrant because you have people coming in every year who are like very experienced players great writers, mm-hmm. you know, and so they're, they're coming in and sort of like bringing that, uh, energy to the scene, which is, uh, I think really healthy. Yeah. Yeah. Um, what is, what is the, what was the transition you made from, from grad student to faculty member? Oh man. Uh, it's kind of an interesting story. Uh, I didn't even apply for the job. Those are the best ones, man. Yeah. So, so like Jeff called me into his office. I think it was like the day I was graduating. Hmm. He just wanted to have a meeting or whatever, and I didn't know what it was about. But 
he just asked me, hey, would you have any interest in teaching here? And I was like, yeah, sure. He's <laughs> like, all right, well, you got the job starting next year. <laughs> I was like, okay, cool. Best interview ever. <laughs> yeah, totally. And I didn't have to do anything because my stuff was already on file mm-hmm. from being a student. So, so I just showed up the next year. And, you know, I've been teaching uh, for – a long time for for my age. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> um, I got like a full time teaching gig. It just like fell in my lap when I was sixteen years old. Wow. Um. So uh, I kind of have like again for my age, I have quite a bit of experience teaching just drum set lessons. Mm-hmm. So I felt comfortable with it, but definitely I tried to create more of a curriculum. And the other thing that I do here at UT is. I really try to create like a community vibe with the drummers where they're friends, they're not competitors. Yeah. Because as soon as they graduate, they're going to be subbing gigs to each other anyway. I mean, they already are. Right. But in the real world, when they graduate, it's like you're not enemies with the other drummers in your town. You guys should be friends. You should be hanging and sharing ideas and chatting. So I, I started this studio class where all the drummers get together once a week and we do that. We maybe have one main focus kind of like I might treat it like a clinic one week where I present one top one topic or I have the students play for each other or we come up with little, uh, little games to kind of try to trip each other up or whatever, mm-hmm. comping games or improvisation exercises, or we might listen to a record or talk about production or talk about getting sounds in the studio or making charts for a pop gig or whatever, yeah, you know, yeah. um, stuff that sometimes doesn't get covered in the curriculum of jazz. Right. You know, and this is one of the things I wanted to talk to you about, you know, any, I've talked with a lot of guys who who teach at the collegiate level in, in sure. some capacity, and yeah, yeah. and we talk so much about you know the 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 jazz centricness of of uh, so many collegiate music programs and so many yeah. collegiate drum programs. So you know, obviously, it's a it's a place to do a deep dive into jazz drumming. But definitely, what are what are some of the skills, concepts, styles that that you try to instill? in uh in your students well i think versatility is really important in mm-hmm. this day and age mm-hmm. and and i say that from experience yeah i mean my gigs that have gotten me the most notoriety or that have paid the most or whatever have not been jazz gigs <laughs> right you know um and so uh i'm aware of that dynamic in in the music world. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I would feel like if I graduate a student who can't play a backbeat that I haven't done my job, yeah. you know? So, um, I try to have my students be really, uh, well-rounded in a bunch of different styles. And then also just in really general stuff, like, um, be able to play a wide variety of tempos, at a wide variety of dynamics, mm-hmm. um, in a wide variety of musical situations, yeah. you know, be able to read, uh, be able to learn stuff by ear, um, without writing it down. Yeah. You know, all those things, because that's what you have to do. Mm-hmm. I mean, day to day, that's what people are asking you to do. Somebody pulls up their iPhone and, and plays like 10 seconds of a groove and they're like, okay, that's the groove. Here we go. Right. So if you don't have the skills to be able to, 
hear that and and know what it takes to play it on your instrument, mm-hmm. then you're not prepared. Yeah, yeah. And it seems like Austin is a in <coughs> itself a great training ground for for your students because there there are a lot of great music programs that are in the middle of nowhere. Yeah, um, definitely. That don't that don't have you know a local scene as as part of their you know day to day experience. Um, totally. I went to grad school in Kansas City. Uh, and cool. there's just a, you know, just like, it sounds like you got there. There's a great bridge between the, the academic circle and the professional circle. Um, yeah, and definitely. you just kind of work your way over the course of your, of your schooling by the time you graduate, like you're in the professional scene already. Yeah, totally. Um, That's definitely the way it is here. Yeah. And so, so what are, uh, what are some of the opportunities and experience that your students get to have on the Nash on the, the Austin scene outside of college? Well, I encourage them all to play as much as possible, Mm -hmm. you know? So like many of my students play for, you know, South by Southwest, even this last year, several of my students were playing in, uh, the ACL music festival, Austin city limits. Oh yeah. Okay. Um, and then just the fact that there are those, like, just all those gigs happening. And, you know, so I'll, I'll sub stuff to my students all the time mm-hmm. um, just to try and get them in that mindset of like, oh, yeah, I guess just because I'm in school, I'm not in this bubble of only practicing. Right. Like, that really shouldn't exist in my opinion. Yeah, definitely you should be practicing while you're in school, but you should be playing gigs all the time. Yep. Yep. <laughs> and you'll never be ready to play a gig. <laughs> like you need to fall on your face a couple of times, I think, on gigs. And the other thing that helps is we have a couple of pretty good jam sessions in town. And sometimes I like make it a requirement when I feel like somebody really needs that. Like, okay, this week you have to go to this jam session mm-hmm. and you have to sit in. Right. You know? Um, because we've all learned, you know, valuable lessons. Yeah. Uh, whether it's, you know, rushing or not knowing the tune or whatever it is, just getting chewed out by some veteran musician. Yeah. And those lessons stick with you, man. I can tell them, don't rush or, you know, learn the form or whatever. But it means so much more when, when like, they're in the heat of the moment. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And you don't even necessarily have to get chewed out by someone. Like, if you're on stage and it's not happening yeah, totally. and, and you're lost, like, that yeah. that feeling, I think, is just as bad as, as totally. catching shit from somebody. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I agree. And I will say Austin's a pretty uh, accepting scene in terms of the jam sessions. Like, there are only a couple of guys here who will really let you have it if, <laughs> if you can't hang. Um so, you know, compared to maybe some other scenes, it's it's a little more mild in that sense. Yeah, I think it's it's gotten milder overall. I mean, you hear stories from back in the day of right. know, fights in the alley or some shit. Exactly, uh, yeah. But I, I think, you know, probably in no small part because of the uh, uh, pervasiveness of collegiate jazz programs, I think jazz scenes in general have gotten more supportive, more accepting, uh, yeah, less, sure. less uh, cutthroat. Um and the other thing that I, I love about a, a scene like Austin is, you know, having your students go out and sit in at those jam sessions and go out and sub for you on gigs, it, it teaches them how to hang. Yeah, exactly. Which is just as important a skill as, as anything you're ever going to play. Yeah, exactly. That's, you know, uh, there's a great drummer. In fact, there are a handful of like world-class monster drummers here 
but they're never here. <laughs> they just live here because it's it's cheap to live right. compared to L.A. or whatever. Uh, so like uh, like Todd Suckerman from Styx is here. Mm-hmm. Um, Tom Breckline just moved here. Uh, Kirk Covington is here. Really? Uh, yeah. Cool. Uh, J.J. Johnson. Um, from oh, yeah. Tedeschi Trucks. trucks. Band. Right. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And and John Mayer for a long time before that. But anyway, I was hanging with J.J. one time. Uh, right after I moved to town, and he told me uh, it's 80% hang, 20% playing. Mm-hmm. And I was like, really? Coming <laughs> from a guy like who plays so great, you really believe that? And he was like, totally. Like, you know, people – and now that I've had, you know, a bunch of experience touring and being on a bus with, with people, you know, it's mm-hmm. like you're playing two out of 24 hours right. in the day. And you're together all the time. Right. You know? So, like, people want to be around people who they enjoy being around, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know? And if they have to put up with, like, something else on the bandstand maybe for for two hours, it's like, I think in some cases it's worth it to have a better hang for the rest of the day and the rest of the year yeah. and, you know, lifetime. So that's important, too, you know? It's just like... I I tell those guys go out and hang, meet people, buy them a drink, be cool. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, just just be yourself, be cool. Yeah, <laughs> and it's it's important to learn the balance uh, between. I'm I'm trying to remember this. I interviewed uh, Gary Hobbs recently, and he uh, he talked about you know going out and hanging and networking, but he says you you want to be a presence, not a nuisance. <laughs> totally. <laughs> yeah. So I I think we've all like found ourselves on the wrong side of that line when you're like talking somebody up and like you pushed it a little too hard or came off yeah. a little desperate or whatever. Yeah. Um, and again, that's a lesson you can only learn by going out and doing it. So where do you go to find a treasure trove of information about vintage drums, custom drums, and legendary drummers? NotSoModernDrummer.com. Since 1988, Not So Modern Drummer is an institution dedicated to researching and documenting the history of modern drums, the art of drum building, and the legendary drummers who play them. The writers and contributors are some of the top vintage and custom drum experts from around the world. Not So Modern Drummer serves as an online gathering place and marketplace for the worldwide community of drummers who buy and sell, collect, preserve, and play these instruments. It also hosts drum-related events that are attended by drummers from all over the world. This website is easy and fun to explore, and the monthly digital magazine subscription is free. So check out NotSoModernDrummer.com. So let's talk about your history a little bit. You grew up in Wisconsin. Yep. And and uh, did your undergrad there, right? I did. I went to a tiny school uh, in the middle of the state in Stevens Point, Wisconsin. Okay. It's it's the place where that '70s show is based off of. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, if you've ever seen that show, they're in a place called Point Place. It's a fictional place, but it's based off of Stevens Point. That's great. Yeah, so, like how many people in that town? Eight thousand, and when school's in session, sixteen thousand. Wow, <laughs> man, that yeah, is it's a wild. that is a tiny hang. Yeah, it is. But the jazz program was actually really strong there. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, that's obviously why I decided to go to school there. But even uh, backing up, I, I want to mention this because I didn't realize this until much later how fortunate I was coming up. So I, I grew up um, maybe 10 minutes from this school called Lawrence University. And there's a really fantastic 
uh, teacher there named Dane Richeson. Mm-hmm. And Dane would like go to Africa. He would go to Ghana and study uh West African drumming and he would go to Brazil and study samba drumming and he's a monster marimba player and a total badass drum set player. Um, And Dane used to come to my grade school and he would bring the African ensemble or he would bring the Brazilian samba group Mm -hmm. or he would bring the big band. Um, And so when I was like, you know, eight, nine, ten years old, I was seeing all this great music and like seeing these essentially clinics yeah. and I was just like, oh yeah, you guys – like Michael Spiro didn't come to your school when you were 10 years old. <laughs> Clave? Like I just thought that happened everywhere but it turned out like I went to this one school where he had a connection with this one teacher and that was like the only school he would do that at. So so even starting then, I was super lucky and, and also I was into drumming at that time because my dad was a drummer. So I started pretty young. Man, I've talked to so many guys whose dads and or grandfathers were, yeah. were drummers. Yeah, totally. So, I mean, I was around it a little bit when I was a kid. He wasn't – my dad wasn't a professional, but the drums mm-hmm. were always kind of around. Right. You know? Um, so that that was great for me. And then, then in high school, I had a really great program. Um, and I'm a huge supporter of music in the schools because mm-hmm. for me, I mean, I'm sure my path would be very different if I didn't have that. But yeah. man, my high school had like three big bands, multiple combos, two vocal jazz groups, Whoa. strings group, like three choirs, three orchestra or uh, one big orchestra, three wind symphonies, Holy uh, shit, musical, man. musical pit and then all then a marching band and like the contest music all that stuff and i did it all i played in every single group sometimes wow. like six per semester i'd be in the same in all like just playing drum set in all of them you know that's amazing uh, yeah so again like i was fortunate to come up in a really happening school yeah. and i totally didn't know i was like oh yeah every school has Two vocal jazz groups and a pop strings group. Right. You know? Right. And was that was that because you were in a gigantic high school, or or was it just sort of a, was, a school committed to that much music? It was a big high school, but at the same time, we had people who were, and I didn't again know this until later, who were like, you know, lobbying for music in the schools and like trying to keep this stuff happening and mm-hmm. and doing a lot behind the scenes to make it work. Um, so, so yeah, that was super uh, great for me. And then I started a band in high school and we ended up playing like for almost 10 years. We traveled, you know, did some tours together. We all went to the same college hmm. um, and just got really serious about music. And we would like take on, I mean, we were playing probably three or we also hosted a jam for all of college. So that band played three, maybe four nights a week all throughout college. Wow. Yeah. And then, I, <laughs> and then I played in some other bands. So I was playing like five nights a week the whole time I was in my undergrad. Man. Um, and that's how it is here. I mean, I kid you not. I'm, I have a, a, an eight-month-old daughter now, mm-hmm. um, which is fantastic. So I've like, you know, hit the brakes a little bit on the local gigs. Mm-hmm. But there was a time – not so long ago where I would play literally 10 gigs a week sometimes. Yeah. Wow. Just like anything that I could do, I would do it mm-hmm. for the whole time I lived here up until basically this past year. Right. Um, 
And even still, like I'm not playing that much, but I'm still playing three or four nights a week. Right, right. Um, and I'm just being a little more picky about the gigs that I'm doing. Right. Uh, so, uh, you know, I, I've been in these situations that I didn't realize until much later that I was very fortunate to be in mm-hmm. the whole way along. And, and I will say this is one thing I tell my students all the time. If there's not a scene, create one. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's what I did. We went. We lived in a town of eight thousand people. Like, we went out to the bars and we're like, "Hey, can we play here? Like, just pay us, you know, drinks and a hundred bucks or whatever. Right? And we'll bring. We'll bring two hundred people because you know? <laughs> we had been playing for so long together that we had a big following. Mm-hmm. Um. So, I mean, those numbers aren't exactly accurate, but uh, right. In, but- in terms of the pay, but still. <laughs> He went to uh, – we went to bars like – in fact, there's one story where I went to a bar. I was living in a tiny town uh, and I went – I just like made a bunch of CDs back in the day, just print them on the computer, you know, mm-hmm. and write with a Sharpie. I had a jazz trio CD and then I had the band mm-hmm. um, and the band could do, you know, a four-hour cover set or whatever and then the, the trio would just play kind of background jazz so I just went to like every establishment in the town and just met the people, met the owners or whatever. And some of them were like, okay, cool, thanks. And that was the end of it. Mm-hmm. And some of them were like, you know, we've been thinking about having music here. And one of those in particular, we were the first band to ever play there. I was like, man, you guys have a little stage over here. You need to have music. And we were the first band to ever play there. And to this day, like 15 years later, they have music every weekend. Wow. And it was just because I walked in. And I talked to the guy and I said, you should have music here. Like, yeah. what do you have to lose, you know? Yeah. Um, so I would encourage maybe anybody who's listening to this around the country in a small town, just go to your local restaurant, go to your local bar, meet the – be cool. Mm-hmm. Don't overextend your invitation, you know. Meet the owner and, and just say, hey, can we work out a deal? Maybe we do a trial thing for the first gig and, and if it works, we'll come back, whatever. Right. But like – if there are gigs, then create them yeah. if you can. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And, you know, the the argument against that is like, oh, you you know, nobody should play for less than a certain amount of money or nobody should play for beer. Or, right. You know, but, you know, if you're trying to work your way into a scene or if you're trying to create one, if you're trying to just gain play, playing experience, you know, if, if you're not taking a gig from someone else and if, right. if, if you're not turning down a different gig that would pay more money if you got nothing to lose – Totally. Absolutely. Go after it. Yeah. There's something to be said about undercutting gigs or like, you know, I'm at a point where I don't, I'm not, I don't need exposure. I'm not Mm going to be playing gigs for exposure, but you better believe that when I was 14, I wanted all the exposure I could get, Mm -hmm. you know, I was happy to play those gigs. Yeah. Um, and we were fortunate to be getting paid when we were 14 playing in bars, but then we had to either go outside or go in the basement on the breaks. (laughs) (laughs) Because <laughs> we weren't we weren't allowed to be in there, but but you know, it just started as a garage band. You know, just play with your friends, play with people who you like hanging out with, and mm-hmm. then and then it just like keeps going. The music keeps getting better, and and then you start booking gigs, and then you start booking tours and playing festivals, and I mean that's how it goes if you stick to it and you really love it. Yeah. Um, during your time in in your undergrad, you got a grant to go to New York and and study with some cats there. I did, yeah. How long did you spend there? Um, it was super short. I think it was maybe two weeks or something. Uh, and, but it was like a two-week intensive of like Bill Stewart and and uh, 
Yeah, so so uh, it was Bill Stewart and Ari Honig and Billy Martin and Joey Barron. Wow. And those were just like drummers who I was really listening to a lot at mm-hmm. that time. So I was like way into all of all of their playing and their music and they're really different guys. So my idea was to write this grant um, to go to New York and basically treat it like a study where I have this like set of um, specific questions that are worded in a certain way and I ask everybody the exact same question in the same way just to see how different the answers were. You know? And it totally... It totally was that. So like, uh, you know, number one question that all drummers want to know is like, what's your approach to playing time? How do you play time? So for Bill Stewart, the answer was yes. Yes, you play (laughs) play with a metronome. Yes, you play along with recordings. Yes, you should play by yourself. Yes, you should play with other people, you know, just Mm -hmm. play. And, you know, knowing him... It's like, yeah, of course, he just practiced whatever he could all the time. Mm-hmm. And that's how it got to be so great. Right. Whereas, like, Billy Martin had a totally opposite answer for that question. He said, you know, I'm not a metronome and music should ebb and flow. So as long as it feels good, then you're doing the right thing, mm-hmm. you know, which is a much more loose approach, you know, if you're trying to get a country gig or something like that, right. you know? <laughs> Um, but for the music that he plays, that's the perfect answer, you mm-hmm. know, and it makes perfect sense. Uh, and by the way, he does have great time, uh, yeah. of course, and a great feel, but, but um, you know, totally different than Bill's answer. And then this is the one that really got me. And, and Ari kind of was the same as, as Bill, just like practice, you know, practice with recordings, but practice with the metronome, but don't rely on it mm-hmm. uh, for your time. But then um, – Joey Barron's answer kind of like shocked me a little bit. I was like, really? He said, if you want to work on your time, don't use a metronome and don't play along with recordings and don't play with anybody else. He said, if you want to work on time, you have to learn how to create time. Hmm. Meaning by yourself without any other things because that's the way it happens in in the real world of playing music, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. So you have to be able to generate a groove that has a certain feel and a certain like push or pull or whatever, mm-hmm. right? And if you can't do that on your own, you can't do it in any other circumstance. Right. You know? So I thought that was pretty interesting, you know? And and the funny thing about this is that they're all right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. So that was a that was a great lesson for me, you know, and and of course it went into all sorts of other stuff, and then eventually I got into more specific stuff with the guys, like you know melody with Ari or or whatever, mm-hmm. uh, just things that they and and Brazilian music with um, uh, Billy Martin, you know, mm-hmm. things that they were into that I was interested in, but yeah. but yeah, that was a great thing, and you know what, I that grant was a. a university-wide grant that was totally open to anything hmm. and they gave two to the whole school and i got one of them so wow, that's cool you know it's like go if you're in school go see where there's some money and try and get it <laughs> you know <laughs> some grants i mean the money's there it's there to be used yeah so uh and it's it's legit research it was a student research grant hmm. yeah man what and what year during your undergrad was that 
Oh, geez. I actually can't remember. Um, probably a little later, like maybe senior year. Yeah. Or junior. I'm not sure. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so that, that two weeks you spent in New York uh, didn't uh, draw you to, to move there? You know, I applied um, – when I applied for grad school at UT, I auditioned at all the big schools. Mm-hmm. I went to New York and L.A. and uh, Miami, Austin, I think maybe a Chicago school, Portland. Mm-hmm. Um, and then what I did was I booked this trip – um, and by the way, I'm like talking about doing all this stuff. Like I had money. I never had any money when I was a kid. <laughs> I was just, I was playing in bands that were gigging and I would save all of my money. In mm-hmm. fact, when I was in high school, uh, I recently saw my old high school band director who reminded me of this. I would practice through lunch every day and I would save my lunch money. And then at the end of the semester, I would buy a symbol. Wow. <laughs> Like and I remember I got ten dollars a week, so it was like two dollars a day for lunch at that time. Wow! And, uh, and well, then what did you, know, you eat, I, man? I didn't eat anything. Oh. I would. <laughs> I got home from school, wow. uh, and I also never ate breakfast, so probably wasn't the most healthy thing to do. But um, <laughs> but you got some plates, man. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so at the end of the semester, I'd have a hundred and sixty bucks, and that's about what like a Zildjian crash symbol cost at that time. Right. So yeah, that's that's what I would do. Um, so uh, <laughs> anyway, um, I guess I lost my train of thought talking about that. Were well, you talking um, about applying to other schools and, and- other schools. oh yeah, that's right. Sorry. Um, so I booked this trip, going to these different schools and auditioning, and really what I was doing was like kind of going to places where I would maybe want to live, right? Because I think that's an important part about. Going to school is like it's sort of a safety net to get into a scene. Yep. Right? Like when you're 18 years old, you're not just going to move to New York and just start playing. Right. Unless you're one in a million. You know, right. there are a couple of people who can maybe do that. But but really going to school in those cities, it allows you to be there and mm-hmm. live there comfortably. You know, uh, granted, you're going to have a lot of debt when it's over. But still, you can live there for four years or two years or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, so I knew I wanted to get out of Wisconsin. I wanted to get into a bigger scene. Um, so I went to all these cities and I spent a little bit of time. I had some musician friends pretty much in every city and I just stayed with them and then did my auditions and I got in everywhere. I got scholarships to all the, all the different schools. And so I just had the choice like, and at that time I had a friend who was living in New York who I was staying with. And I was staying on his couch and I distinctly remember, uh, I mean, he was paying like at that time, I don't know, 1200 bucks for a one bedroom that was like not in a great neighborhood and it was super tiny and this dude was eating buttered noodles for dinner every night and eating a Snickers bar for lunch. Jesus. Uh, going to the new school, monster player, you know, um, doing the thing but i i distinctly remember laying on his couch and watching the rats come in under his door oh my god the, uh, the light was on in the in the hallway so i could just see him coming in i was like you know i just don't think i want to do this <laughs> i, I want to like have a little bit more comfortable scenario you know and at yeah. that time i had like i said i had been gigging and touring and making money playing in a band i was like 
I can always make money playing gigs, you know, mm-hmm. on the side. So I'd like to just live somewhere that's a little more comfortable. So, so then, you know, I, I sort of ruled out the big cities just, just for the cost and then eventually landed on Austin because I, I felt like the vibe was really cool here and the, the scene was pretty vibrant and, um, there were musicians who I liked the way they played or I liked their approach or, or their projects or whatever it was just from what I had seen in the couple days I was here. Mm-hmm. And then I also really liked the school, you know, um, the, the professors at UT are great educators and they're, um, you know, they're, they're serious, but at the same time, they're all monster players yeah. and they're all playing all the time. It's not like they're theoretical jazz musicians. Right. Like they, can, they can like actually do it, you know, yeah. and you're, have for years. You're not the first person on, on this podcast to talk about, you know, finding a school that is in a city where you want to live and work. Totally. Um, and you know, I think it, it it's it's not talked about enough for for uh, music students. It it really behooves them. Like, obviously, do your due due diligence on the school and the faculty there, and figure out if if you know that's a place you want to be. But you got to do research on the city. What's, Definitely. What's the cost of living there? What's the music scene like there? Who's playing gigs? Who are the musicians outside of the college that are going to be your colleagues and competitors? If you're taking on debt, you know, does that city have a music scene that will allow you to work and make some money and eventually pay down the debt? And it's a lot for, you know, an 18 or a 22 year old to sort of process. But, uh, you know, these are, these are the questions that, uh, I think for a lot of students get answered too late. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And you know, uh, even when students come here and audition, all the drummers who audition, I just meet with them right after their audition and just like in a low pressure situation in my office, just like, okay, now do you actually have any questions that you didn't want to ask to the panel, (laughs) you know? Right. Uh, and then I just talk to him about the scene a little bit and about the program and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Um, because I think it's important to, uh, you know, give them that information or at least plant the seed in their head. Like, you know, go to school somewhere where you actually want to live. Let's talk about the uh, the things that, that keep you busy lately. Yeah. Uh, your, your schedule is full of uh, Eric Johnson and Bob Schneider. Yeah, so... Uh, I started playing with Eric in 2011, um, and we've done a, like a lot of stuff, man. A couple of world tours. Mm-hmm. I've played on the last three records um, and a couple of singles and all kinds of stuff. Uh, now, I I haven't actually been doing much lately with Eric because he's on a big like nationwide solo acoustic tour. Hmm. So, uh, and he's been doing that the last year or so. Uh, so, and for those who aren't hip to him, he's, he's a guitarist. He's a guitarist. Yeah. He's kind of a guitar hero guy. As a matter of fact, the, the actual game guitar hero, uh, the last song, like on the highest level to beat the game is one of his songs. Really? <laughs> yeah. That's amazing. I, I never played the game, but several people told me that. So that's I cool. Yeah. So would you would you put him under the under the blues umbrella? Is he more of a rock Satriani type guy? I would say I mean he's most associated with the rock kind of Satriani thing. Mm-hmm. In fact, he was the original guitar player in a band called G3, which okay. was Satriani, Steve Vai and Eric Johnson. 
that was the original G3, and they did like a world tour together, and wow. like you know the it was like this crazy thing. Yeah. Um, so yeah, he's a shredder in that sense, but he's a super melodic, sensitive musician. You know, mm-hmm. it's not just shredding. He's a tone freak. Like mm-hmm. that's something he spends a lot of time on and is really really known for. Yeah, um, it seems like he can write a good hook too. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, yeah, he won a Grammy. He's been nominated for a bunch of Grammys. Uh, and, and he sings. That's one thing a lot of people don't realize is, you know, when we do the trio tours, he's singing like the majority of the time. It's mm-hmm. not just like instrumental shredding rock. But he's he grew up in Austin with Stevie Ray Vaughan, you know. like I so was going to say, like it's a power trio. I immediately so, think Stevie Ray Vaughan and Double yeah. Trouble. So he can do that thing too. Um not the same way that Stevie did it by any means, but right. but there's there's a serious kind of blues, uh, like I don't know, I guess just history in Austin. Yeah, you know? it's it's uh, in the it's in the water. Yeah, totally. So so he has that, and he can play some jazz and stuff. But but yeah, like this tour that he's doing right now and, and last year, he's playing solo acoustic guitar and piano. Wow. Yeah, and piano was his first instrument, and he can like really play the piano. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think some of his guitar shredder fans are pretty surprised to see that he can like rip on the piano. Yeah, you know? yeah. Um, but yeah, so then you know, since uh, he's not doing much band wise uh, recently, I've been playing more with Bob Schneider, who's a songwriter in Austin. He's kind of like the king of Austin. Uh, <laughs> Like they have these Austin Music Awards every year that have been going since the seventies, I think. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Bob has won more Austin Music Awards than any musician ever. Wow! <laughs> and the person who had the title before him actually was Eric Johnson. Huh. And Bob just beat him last year because he put a new record out, and then he won like in every category. Wow! <laughs> um, so yeah, I mean, Bob. Bob is real interesting because he is a super prolific songwriter. He has 1,500 written, recorded songs. Whoa. Yeah. And I tell people that and they're like, no way. That's, yeah. I've, I've seen the catalog. <laughs> I've got it all the time. I, and Bob, too, I've been playing with for like a little over five years now. And it was as a sub for a long time. Uh, I would do all the tours because his main drummer had little kids and couldn't go on the road. Mm-hmm. So I did all of his tours. And on those tours, I kid you not, like even still – we play almost every gig. We play something that I've never heard. Like he just will start a song and I'll be like, what is this? And the, and the bass player, uh, Bruce has been playing with them for, I don't know, 25 years or something. So he knows everything. Right. Uh, so he'll kind of tell me if there are some stops or something I need to know. Um, but yeah, it's, it's pretty wild. I mean, he has just an incredible catalog. He's always working, always writing. Yeah. This is, this is a great example of like circling back to the jazz thing. Um, you know, Bob Schneider is obviously not a a jazz musician, but your, your training in jazz gives you the, the ear and the improvisational skills and the interaction and all of that stuff you need, just kind of having your antenna up to be able to make it through a song that you've never heard. Definitely. Yeah, uh, is that is that something that you kind of translate to your students? Like, you know, I, you're you're not going to make a bunch of money transcribing this Philly Joe solo, right? Or <laughs> playing, yeah, yeah, yeah. Playing this combo, but it it totally. gives you the wherewithal to kind of get through that kind of stuff. Yeah, definitely. 
and we do like in the studio class I was talking about, we'll do exercises where it's like, okay, uh, you get one listen through on this tune and I want you to tell me what the form is and what the part, what the main parts are for every section, you know, mm-hmm. and then play it, <laughs> right? you know, um, or just play. Sometimes I'll play like a, a little play along groove and just say like, okay, just follow, just use your ears and follow, mm-hmm. you know, like no chart, no nothing. Yeah. Just see, see if you can do it because that's a real scenario. I mean, I'm doing it every, every couple of days with Bob, yeah. you know, uh, but there are a lot of people who operate that way. It's like, oh, you'll get it. Just, just follow me. Right. You know, <laughs> how many times have you heard that? You'll hear it. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And s- some band leaders are, are better at leading than, <laughs> definitely than others. Yeah. That's a skill that, uh, I think needs to actually be polished. You don't, just because you're leading the band doesn't mean you necessarily know how to give cues or anything right. like that. <laughs> yeah. Just, just cause you're in front doesn't mean you're leading. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> Um, and so you've got a, a couple other, uh, projects just under your name, uh, yeah. the Groove Society and the, uh, the Wayne Saltzman Trio. Yeah. So Carter, who we mentioned our common thread with Kevin, mm-hmm. uh, plays in my trio and we started this gig just a, a weekly Sunday brunch gig four years ago now. Uh, and now it, it became like I was out of town so much I couldn't do it every week. So we do the first and third Sunday of every month. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, yeah, that's been going strong for, for four years, and it's super cool. We play some original music and play some standards and, and sometimes just totally improvise or play some, play some weird versions of Sabbath or Beatles or, <laughs> or something. You know, it's kind of anything goes. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and the owner of that, that place is a drummer, so he's real cool. Oh, cool. Um, and then the Groove Society is my uh, six-piece funk band. And I put out some videos over the last year with Vic Firth, yeah. uh, one of which was a play-along contest that just came out pretty recently. And all those recordings, that's all my original music and arrangements, um, but that band is, is Groove Society on those recordings, yeah. Mm-hmm. So, and does that, like, your trio is obviously doing a bunch of local gigs and stuff, but yeah. is, is, was Groove Society mainly a, a recording kind of video project, or does that band play out? No, we play. Uh, we play actually at the at the jazz club in town, the Elephant Room. It's mm-hmm. sort of the main spot. Um, for the last couple of years, we've played about once a month there, um, and then we've done a couple of other gigs. We played the Austin Jazz Festival one year. Um, we've done a couple of other things around town, but uh, I'm not really booking that band super hard right now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, <laughs> uh, just because. It takes a lot of energy to do that, you know, and I've got a bunch of other stuff on the plate. Yeah. Yeah. Doing the uh doing the leading, booking, arranging, composing thing when it's all on you, that's it's a heavy lift. Yeah, for sure. And my hat is off to to guys who who do it and you yeah. know, get a lot of work for other guys. Um Yeah, totally. Yeah. Well, uh, I think I think our time is up, and you got to go do that eight-hour teaching marathon. I do, yeah. Jeez. <laughs> but man, thanks thanks for taking an hour with us. Really appreciate it. Yeah. And uh, thanks for Absolutely. introducing us to Austin. For sure. Thanks for having me. And continued success, man. Thank you. All right. Cheers. Thanks again to Wayne for introducing us to Austin. It sounds like a great place to be, whether you want to get some playing experience and move on to something else, or make it your permanent home. Thanks also to Mike Jackson for his technical assistance. Come back to us next week for Matthew Krause's interview. And as always, thanks for listening. Mm